Hey everyone, my name is Randall Heyer and I'm the worship arts pastor here at Cochrane Alliance Church. We are so glad that you've come to check out the latest sermon and we pray that you are encouraged, challenged, and ultimately that you are drawn closer to Jesus. Enjoy. Let's uh, pray together for the message this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for all that you have provided for us. Thank you that you have uh, graciously provided for our needs so that we can uh, be locally minded and globally focused. And I pray as we come into your word today that by the power of your Holy Spirit present and at work in us that we would receive the message that you have prepared for us. I pray that we would come with expectation that you are uh, speaking to us and that we can hear your words. And so I pray that if there's anything that would hinder us from hearing you today that it would be removed that in this place we would receive your fullness of your presence and, uh, and of what you have to say to us. So let us receive from you here today, at, even as we worship you. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So I don't know if you've been reading through the book of Acts as we've been going through the book of Acts, but I've been, you know, rereading the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. And something that has been standing out to me in the past few weeks is just how tough Paul is. Have you ever thought about how tough Paul must have been? Like, he just takes these beatings and he gets himself up and he goes on to the next city. I, I thought this week, I was like, he's like the Rocky Balboa of the New Testament. If anyone knows who Rocky is, the Italian stallion, fictional boxer, Rocky said, it's not about how hard you can hit, it's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. And I'm like, that's kind of the Apostle Paul. He's a man on a mission and nothing, nothing deters him. He seems to have no fear and, and no hesitation. And, you know, now Paul's human, and so I'm sure that he did have fear. He kind of, you know, he's kind of presented as almost this fearless uh, man, but I think he must have been afraid on some occasions. But he never let fear determine his path. Paul marches straight into danger because he knows that he's never been called to live a life of safety or comfort. He's completely sold out to Jesus. Knowing that no matter what hardship he faces, no matter how terrible the beatings are, no matter how dangerous the journey is, it pales in comparison to the glory of eternal life. Paul says it like this. He says, therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Don't you just love that Paul calls his troubles light and momentary? But when you look at the troubles that he's actually talking about, that he says are light and momentary, I mean, here's the troubles. So, so Paul travels across the Roman Empire, about 10,000 miles of traveling by foot and by boat. He was beaten, he was arrested, he was threatened with death multiple times. He was hungry and thirsty and went without food. He was shipwrecked and faced opposition to his ministry at every turn. He was mocked and he was shunned and he was misunderstood. And yet to Paul, all of these things, he says, these are light and momentary trials compared to the glory of eternity. And I don't know about you, but I'm kind of like, I wish that I saw my troubles as light and momentary you know, my troubles aren't even anywhere close to the things that Paul went through. But Paul accepted these hardships as part of his mission to share the good news of God's grace to the nations. And I'm convinced, so when I first started studying Paul, I thought, okay, this is a man who is duty-bound. 
He understands his obligation to be a servant of Christ. And I think that there's an element of that in Paul. I think that he is a man who understands what it is to be a servant, to be obedient to Christ. But I don't think that Paul is motivated only by duty. I think he's also motivated out of love. Out of a love for the world that God gave to him. Paul experienced God's love himself in such vast measure that he then must extend that love of God to the world around him. Paul puts it like this to Timothy. He says, I used to blaspheme the name of Christ. And in my insolence, I persecuted his people. But God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with the faith and the love that come from Christ Jesus. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. So I don't think that Paul is just motivated by duty. I think that he has experienced God's love in such vast measure that he says, I need to show those people who hate Christ and who hate me that God still loves them. He says, I will be an example that even great sinners can experience the love of God. And so Paul loves these people who beat him and who throw stones at him and who imprison him. Think of that Philippian jailer who locked him in the jail cell. And Paul says, no, no, don't kill yourself. I'm here. We're all here. Let me tell you about Jesus. So Paul loves these people because he was once just like them. And if God loved him, Paul says, well, if God loved me, the worst of sinners, the chief of sinners, then God's going to use me as an example to these other people. And so Paul goes in the love of God to those who despise him so that he might save some. We get a deeper insight into how Paul views his life as we come into Acts chapter 20. So Paul's eager to get to Jerusalem for the celebration, the festival of Pentecost, and he calls the elders of the Ephesian church to meet him on his way at a place called Miletus. When the elders of the church arrive, Paul tells them this. He says, I am bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me, except that the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city, jail and suffering lie ahead. But my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus. The work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. With this mindset, I think we can understand how Paul steps into these life-threatening situations over and over again. It's because he's convinced his life would be worth nothing unless he uses his life to tell others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. Because in Paul's mind, he's going, God went out of his way to save me, the chief of sinners. And then Jesus commissioned me to go to the Gentiles. And so out of love and out of duty, my life is worth nothing unless I am doing this, telling others about the grace of God. Now I realize that we're not all the Apostle Paul. We're not all called to be like the Apostle Paul. But Paul does say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so I think for us today as we come into our text, there's something that we can learn about Paul, about boldness and about courage to share the hope and the good news of Jesus out of our love for God and our love for people. So we're going to talk a little bit about boldness and courage today. Now, if you're anything like me, whenever someone says, I'm going to be bold for Jesus, I get like warning bells going off in my head. 
right? Because in my mind, the people who say, I'm going to be bold for Jesus are sort of the people who stand on the street corner with megaphones and signs saying, like, everyone goes to hell unless you believe in Jesus. And they kind of, you know, yell at people and they're rude and obnoxious. And I'm like, I don't want to be like that. If that's what being bold for Jesus means, I don't want that because I'm, I'm not sure that their evangelism is rooted, is rooted in love. It's, it seems like their style of evangelism is rooted more in needing some sort of approval for themselves or trying to prove something to somebody. I, I don't think it's rooted in love. And, and one of you know, my principles of evangelism is this. It's rooted in love. Why do I share the hope that I have in Jesus? It's because I, I love people. And I want them to know the, the love and the grace and the mercy that I have experienced. I want to share the hope that I have in Jesus with people, not because I need to prove something to God or I need approval from my church or I need approval from God, but simply because I love people. And I want the, the foundation of my evangelism to be rooted in God's love for me and my love for others. Love must be the foundational motive for everything that we do. So when I say boldness, I don't mean obnoxiousness or rudeness. I mean just that simple ability and desire to share the hope that you have found in Jesus and even making opportunities to speak of the hope and the joy that you found in Jesus because you love people. You love the world that God loved so much that he sent his son to die for it. Right When you think about this, that God so loved the world that he sent his son. Love was the motivation for God to come to us. And so love needs to be our motivation to go out into the world. We are sent as Jesus was sent, and Jesus was sent. The foundation of it was God's love for humanity. And so we need to love people like that. But the interesting thing is, is I don't know what's happening, but I, I, I've sensed kind of this, this lack of, of passion, this lack of zeal um, to share the hope that we have in Jesus. And new uh, statistics confirm this. And I can thank uh, Terry for sending me uh, some information on some statistics in Canada. But can I just report to you some, some interesting stats that I found? A new study done in Canada reports that 31% of church leaders say that it's wrong to share their Christian beliefs with someone of a different religion or of no religion with the hopes that they'll one day identify as Christian. And a recent Barna study found that 44% of Gen Z Christians feel it's wrong to share one's personal belief with someone of a different faith in hopes that they'll one day share the same faith. Not only, it's not that they don't want to do it, it's that they actually believe it's wrong to do so. It's morally and ethically wrong to share your faith. 31% of Christian leaders and 44% of Gen Z. It seems we're losing the sense that following Jesus radically and significantly changes the course of your life. There's sort of this nonchalant attitude towards following Jesus, kind of this thing of like, well, it works for me, it might work for you, but I'm not going to force anything on you. But if Jesus gives us new life, and indwells us by his spirit, making us children of God and bearers of his light, I don't think we want to have 31% of our leadership and 44% of our Gen Z saying, well... I don't think it's very good to share our faith. There's some kind of a disconnect between, you know, what Jesus has done and is doing and, and this idea that if, if Jesus has radically changed your life, don't you want to share that hope with other people, with people that you love? Like if you say Jesus is, is kind of the center of my life, Jesus has changed everything about me, he's made me a new creation, isn't the most loving thing you can do to at least tell people about the hope that you've received? 
The Apostle Paul is passionate about Jesus because Jesus radically changed his life. I want to give you one more point of data before we move on. In a 2019 survey asking about challenges to evangelism, like what what are the biggest challenges to sharing your faith? 42% of Christians said a lack of confidence was their main hindrance to evangelism and a lack of training in evangelism was the least cited at only 23%. So the stats are showing this. It's not that people don't know what to say about Jesus. They don't lack training. It's that they lack the confidence to say it. And I wonder, you know, I, I don't have the information on why that would be. Why do you lack confidence? But I wonder if it's because so many examples of evangelism we saw were not rooted in actual love for people. It was rooted in some sort of, well, my pastor wants me to do it, or my church thinks it's good, or if I do it, you know, I'm going to get kind of applauded by my, my little social circle. But it wasn't actually done because you loved people. Right? It was maybe something more internal that you needed to do it. You had a, a felt need that you needed to do it, but it wasn't, you know, I think people can sense when you don't actually love them. Right? Like when uh, Christians have, have sometimes, I was actually at a Denny's one time, and, uh, and the Christian group before us did one of those things where they didn't actually leave a tip. They left a fake $100 bill, but on the back of it was the, the, the tip for getting saved. But they didn't actually leave any money. Tell me you don't love people, right, without telling me you don't love people. You know what would have worked? Why don't you actually take a $100 bill and tip $100 on your $15 meal and say, hey, I just want to bless you because Jesus has so blessed me and I want you to be blessed. Is there anything I can pray for you about? Anyways, that's an aside. So today we're going to talk about boldness and when I talk about boldness, that's the type of boldness I mean. The courage to do something like that. To tip extravagantly so that you might just say, hey, I'm just, I'm just giving you this extra bit of money. It's not a mistake because I love you because Jesus loves you. That's the type of boldness and the courage that I I, I would like us to to have, that I would like myself personally to have. To share our faith often requires those sacrificing some of those cultural idols of safety and comfort and even respectability. Now look at the Apostle Paul. He knows that safety and comfort is is nothing that's guaranteed him, right? And, And it's not even something he wanted. What Paul really wanted was boldness and courage to proclaim the good news. Paul wanted God to be glorified in his weakness and in his suffering, but safety was never something Paul considered important. But have you found that in North American Christianity, we seem to have this preoccupation with safety and comfort? Physical safety, but also economic safety. Only in our privileged Western world can we imagine that our faith is somehow tied up with physical safety or economic comfort. Now just think about this with me. Nearly all the apostles were martyred for their faith. Most of them were beaten and imprisoned multiple times. Jesus himself was crucified. There's nothing safe or comfortable about that. Jesus said the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. There's no economic safety net here. He sends out his followers saying don't take with you a purse or sandals or anything. There's no economic comfort here. And the church has been persecuted since the day it began. Millions of Christians have been murdered simply for proclaiming the name of Jesus. The author Drew Dick points out the Gospels record not one instance of Jesus or the disciples praying for physical safety. Now Jesus does pray that the disciples would be kept safe from the evil one, 
But Jesus also promised his followers that they would be hated and arrested and beaten and murdered. And so the safety that Jesus prays for is a spiritual safety from the attacks of the evil one, but not physical safety. And I wonder if some of the attacks of the evil one is luring us into apathy. And luring us into a place of, of accepting that, oh, you know, to be a Christian is, is to be safe and comfortable. As we work through Paul's journey to Jerusalem today in Acts 21, we're going to see this tension between desiring safety and being obedient to God's call to go into all the world and make disciples. Because making disciples is dangerous, and it's especially dangerous in the time of the Roman Empire, uh, where you know you have Pharisee controlled Jerusalem, and then the Roman Empire controls the rest. And, and Luke records for us a lot of details about Paul's trip to Jerusalem. We're going to pick up in chapter 21 of Acts, in verses 4 to 6. And I'm just going to give you a, a fair warning here. We're going to go on a little bit of a rabbit trail, and then I'm going to bring you back. But, and I hate when pastors go on rabbit trails for no reason, but I feel like this is important. So we're going to go down this rabbit trail and then we're going to pull it back home. And you're going to see, wow, he really, hopefully, you're going to say, wow, he really brought that full circle. And uh, we're going to find out if that happens. Okay, so we're picking up in, in uh, verse 4 of Acts chapter 21. They land in the city of Tyre. Luke says, we went ashore, found the local believers, and stayed with them for a week. These believers prophesied through the Holy Spirit that Paul should not go on to Jerusalem. When we returned to the ship at the end of the week, the entire congregation left the city and came down to the shore with us. There we knelt, we prayed, we said our farewells, then we went aboard the ship and returned home. Entire, notice this with me, entire, Paul receives his first prophetic warning to not continue to Jerusalem. They prophesied through the Holy Spirit that Paul should not go to Jerusalem. But do you remember what Paul said in Acts chapter 20? He said, I'm bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Then he goes to Tyre and they say, in the Holy Spirit, don't go to Jerusalem. Oh, well, who's right? How, how are we going to make sense of this? Well, well let's just kind of continue because we... Well, I'll pause right here and I'll say this. I want to point out how prophetic speech in the, in the church is not seen as authoritative. Because Paul doesn't say, oh, okay, you prophesied in the spirit. Okay, I, I won't go on to Jerusalem. He says, okay, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I'm going to continue though. Right? So he receives it and he disregards it. Okay, thank you for prophesying. Thank you for telling me. Um, I think I'm going to continue the journey. And he continues. So Paul and his companions continue. Luke records, we went to Caesarea and we stayed at the home of Philip the Evangelist. Several days later, a man named Agabus, who also had the gift of prophecy, arrived from Judea. He came over. He took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands with it. Then he said, the Holy Spirit declares, so shall the owner of this belt be bound by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and turned over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the local believers begged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. The second prophecy that Paul should not go to Jerusalem. Well, actually, Agabus doesn't say you shouldn't go to Jerusalem. He just says, hey, if you go to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen to you. So Agabus has prophesied before. He's, he's not, and he was accurate. You can read about this in Acts chapter 11. He's not some kook prophet. Like, he's, he's an accurate prophet in the church. He gets things right. Paul would be bound and, and handed over to the Romans. Now, what you notice with Agabus is he doesn't try and interpret the prophecy. He just says, hey, Whoever owns this belt, that's Paul's belt, that's what, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to be bound and, and handed over to the Romans. But what happens is everyone who hears that prophecy begs Paul not to go to Jerusalem. 
So we're kind of faced with this difficulty. Paul says the Holy Spirit's leading him to Jerusalem. The believers who prophesy in the Spirit say the Holy Spirit is warning Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So how do we deal with this tension? I think what's happening here, I think the simplest explanation is this, is that the prophetic word is correct. We, we, we find out it is correct. Everyone is correct. Paul is right. He's Suffering in jail lie ahead. The believers entire were right. Yes, if you go, you will be arrested and imprisoned. And Agabus is right. Yes, if you go, you'll be arrested and imprisoned. The prophetic word is right. What they get wrong is their interpretation of it, the application of it. So some of the believers, they, they see that Paul's going to be arrested and imprisoned. It's prophesied over. They believe it. The Spirit has given them that vision or that, that insight. And then they move into the human interpretation, which is, well, that means you shouldn't go. Right? It's the what does this mean for me question that they get wrong. Which is kind of always my caution when it comes to using prophetic speech. That we should be diligent to speak only what's been revealed to us and not what we think it might mean unless God has given us that as well. Because that's really where the disconnect is. They get the, the prophetic part right. The Holy Spirit says, hey, Paul's going to be arrested. I'm preparing you for this. Paul will be arrested. And they in their humanness then go beyond what God has revealed and they say, well, that means you must not go. And so that's why we have instructions regarding prophetic speech like this. Let two or three people prophesy, let the others evaluate what is said. And do not stifle the Holy Spirit, do not scoff at prophecies, but test everything that is said and hold on to what is good. And that's really what Paul's doing here is he's evaluating it, he's testing it, he's going, okay, the prophetic word tracks, the Spirit has told me that I'll be bound, suffering and, and jail lie ahead. But he's weighing it and he's going, but... I don't think that the, the interpretation of it is correct. I, I don't think I'm supposed to, to stop my journey. I think I'm supposed to continue. And you can kind of see how Paul is able to discern this as Paul says to the believers, why all this weeping? Well, because they love you, Paul. Um, you are breaking my heart. I'm ready not only to be jailed at Jerusalem, but even to die for the sake of the Lord Jesus. When it was clear we couldn't persuade him, we gave up and said the Lord's will be done. And so I just see, what you see here is, is, again, Paul is just discerning, he's evaluating, he's testing what is said, and he's going, I know the prophecy is right, but the interpretation is wrong. I'm, I'm willing to suffer and die. The Spirit has told me that this is what is coming to me, and so I will continue. And we can understand why the believers would want Paul to remain safe. He's a man that they loved, admired, and respected, and he was a man who was doing what others really couldn't do. He was bringing the gospel to the most difficult cities, and so even in human wisdom, it just made sense to keep Paul safe. Yet Paul knows he's called to be bold and to, to love the world courageously, so he's going to go where the Holy Spirit tells him to go, even if it means certain death and arrest. And so there's just that disconnect between what the believers think is right and what is actually the right thing. And that, that disconnect where they think that safety is kind of the ultimate goal for Paul. Like, we got to keep this guy safe. That disconnect, I think, is the same disconnect we see in modern church life, where we seem to think that Christianity is safe or that it should lead us to safety. I heard of a youth pastor one time who was describing being a Christian to a group of high school youth, and he said, you don't have to worry. If you follow Jesus, nothing will really change. You won't have to lose your friends. You won't be unpopular. Everything will be the same but better. Except that's not true. And I would say, hey, I was a Christian in a high school where there was only two Christians in my entire high school. Uh, it wasn't very fun. It was pretty hard. 
And so following Jesus, what does it mean? Well, Jesus tells us it means you die to yourself. You pick up your cross. You follow him. And when we follow Jesus, it means we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to live like Jesus. And the life Jesus lived was a life of love. Hugh Halter puts it like this. He says, Jesus said the whole reason he came was so that we might have life, abundant life. He didn't come and take on flesh so you'd someday pray a salvation prayer and go to church and settle for a semi-religious life. He has bigger hopes and dreams for you than that. He came so that his divine life could actually take root in you. And I think what he's trying to get across is that we need to kind of get out of that mode of, you know, I just live my nice, comfortable Christian life and I go to church when it's convenient for me and then I just kind of do my thing. And he's saying, no, the life of Jesus should so, so saturate your being that everywhere you step, heaven is meeting earth. That everywhere you go, people are one encounter away from the living God because of the way you live your life, because the divine presence of Jesus has so saturated you and so enlivened you, and you walk in the abundant life of Jesus. And what I find is that for some Christians, they kind of think the Christian life looks more like an Americana painting of Christianity than biblical Christianity, right? That's kind of the image that they have of like, ah, yes, I'll have, you know, being a Christian means you marry a good spouse and you have nice, well-behaved children and a well-kept house and a good job with a good retirement plan, and you take that beautiful family to church when you can, and you live your life. Now, it's not that any of those things are bad, but they're not uniquely Christian. They're simply cultural things that we would like to have. But Jesus doesn't promise us any of those things, even though most of us have them. I actually think I do have a beautiful family, well-behaved children, sometimes. Pretty good job, pretty good life, pretty, good, pretty nice house. So I have a lot of those things, and, and most of you have, have those things, and thank God for that. They're wonderful to have, but what I want us to understand is that that's not what Christianity is. Those aren't the promises that Jesus makes for us. What Jesus does promise us is his presence, abundant life in him, his power, his authority, and he promises us difficulty, suffering, trial, and hardship. Keep in mind that for many of our brothers and sisters in faith around the world, the Christian life does not look like marrying the perfect spouse and going to the perfect church and having the most well-behaved children. It actually means being cut off from family and friends, losing your job, being mocked or beaten, imprisoned or killed. There's an admissions organization called Asia Access, and when someone becomes a believer in Jesus, their first question is, are you ready to die? Are you ready to be forsaken by your family? And if they can't answer yes to either of those questions, they say, then I don't think you want to follow Jesus. Because it is so dangerous in some places where, where they have missionaries that they say, if, today you might die if you profess faith in Jesus. Are you ready to die today? Today your family may ostracize you and shun you and kick you out of, of the family land. Are you ready to lose everything today? Because to say yes to Jesus today means you lose it all. Imagine that sales pitch when you're doing your evangelism. Write that on the $100 fake tip. Are you ready to die today and lose everything? Trust me, it's great. But that's where I, I think we need to kind of wrap our minds around this, that what does Jesus give to us? He doesn't promise us the perfect spouse and the perfect house and the perfect family and the perfect life. He promises us himself. And the love of Christ will flow through us radically changing us from the inside out. Now, 
because of the things that go on around the world, I know that we're not persecuted as Christians in Canada, but I do want to acknowledge that, that our culture is rap- rapidly shifting and changing, and, and Christianity in Canada has lost its privileged position in culture. Recent statistics show that evangelical Christians are seen by almost every other religious or non-religious group in Canada as mostly a negative force in society. Okay, so that means most most Canadians don't have a very good idea of evangelical Christians. We have a negative reputation. And as we lose that former position of privilege we once had, we scramble to find the way forward. We talked a few weeks ago about different postures the church tries to take in this changing culture, right? Sometimes we try and hide from the world, that fortification mode. Sometimes we try and fight the culture wars, that's the domination mode. Sometimes we just try and accommodate everything and and lose our uniqueness, and, and that's called accommodation. But I think we're simply called to love the world as God loved the world. To be the light in the world as Jesus was the light in the world. Letting our light shine out, our good deeds shine out so that everyone may glorify God. And in this way we become agents of transformation. And agents of transformation are dangerous to the domain of darkness, not because we dominate those who disagree with us, but because we refuse to stop loving the world as God loved the world and sent his son to die for it. Sacrificial love is dangerous to the ways of darkness. A love that won't stop is dangerous to the ways of darkness. A love that says it's not about how hard I can hit, but it's about how hard I can get hit and keep moving. A love that says, I will not stop loving you, even if you hate me. That's dangerous. Martin Luther King Jr. said, we live in extreme times. The question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists we will be. Will we be extremists for hatred or for love? You know, I think this is the, apost- the posture of the Apostle Paul. I think Paul went from being an extremist for hatred as he hunted down and persecuted the believers to being an extremist for love. And love compelled him to live courageously for Jesus. This quote from Dr. King reminds me of the Apostle Paul's mindset as he sits in chains and he writes to the church in Philippi. He said, he's in chains and he says, Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. It's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord. And he says, rejoice with me. Rejoice for my chains have furthered the cause of Christ. And so what I see is that when safety or comfort becomes our driving concern, not only do we fail to live boldly and courageously for for our faith, but our witness of Christ to the world suffers. We become known for what we're against and not what we're for. A lot of people in our culture know what Christians don't like. Do they know what we do like? Do they know what we're for? That's a good question. But we respond to the world around us with fear and anger, while hatred towards those we fear isn't far behind. And what is needed to counteract fear and anger and hatred is courageous love, a love that willingly walks into places that are uncomfortable, where we would sacrifice some part of ourselves for the good of others. And so what I see with Paul, the example I take from Paul today is that he's an example of courageous love. Someone who says that even even when you're my enemy, I'm going to love you. Even when you beat me and stone me and imprison me, I'm going to love you because God loved me. As Jesus said, love your enemies and do good to them. 
Dan Allender says, bold love is courageously setting aside our personal agenda to move humbly into the world of others with their well-being in view, willing to risk in order to be an aroma of life to some. You know, we're, we're not like the Apostle Paul. We're not going to be called to sacrifice our bodies or our lives. Probably not. But I, and I find myself, but you know, for the gospel, like Paul's willing to die and be imprisoned and beaten and shipwrecked for the sake of proclaiming the gospel. I'm not going to be called to do that. And so I find myself convicted because even though I'm not being asked to give my life or my body for the sake of the gospel, I'm, I'm often willing to give so little. Perhaps loving the world like Jesus loved the world will require me to give some of my money or some of my time. Honestly, the worst thing for me is giving of my time. I'm a hoarder of my time. But my neighbors need me to love them as I love myself. And the world needs to see the love of Jesus through me and my actions. Paul's willing to sacrifice his whole life, to live as Christ, to die as gain. And I ask myself, how much am I willing to give so that the world would know the love of God? And I mean, if I'm being honest, in many cases, it's not that much. You know, I'm, I'm so grateful to serve in this church because every day I actually get inspired to love the world better because I look at how some of you in this church have helped, have helped in, in the world. Like I see some of you have taken in Ukrainian refugee families or I look at the mentors who take time out of their schedules to mentor people um, in isolation or loneliness or with mental health struggles. I look at uh, the athletes and the founders of Freedom 8848 who work uh, to end sex trafficking around the world and the numerous other people I talk to in this church who are involved in, in different areas in our community, whether that's formally or informally, letting your good deeds shine like light in the darkness, and I'm so grateful for you. And I'm so humbled by your willingness to give of yourself for the good of others. And I pray that in those places where you sacrifice of your time or your resources, that you would be given opportunities to share the hope that you have in Christ. When I was reflecting on this, it reminded me of what Paul wrote to the Colossian believers. He said, Epaphras has told us about the love for others that the Holy Spirit has given you. You know, I, I think that's really what I, I would like produced in my life and maybe what I'd like to pray for you today as we close is that the Holy Spirit would give us a love for others. That we would love others well and deeply. That we would be willing to sacrifice a little bit of our time, a little bit of our money, a little bit of our comfort, a little bit of our respectability so that we might speak of the hope we have in Jesus. And so the important question to ask is, are we taking the necessary risks to be the light of the world wherever we are? Are we loving courageously, risking comfort, security, and our own wants and desires so that others might see the light of our lives? I'm going to call the worship team up as we close here, and I'm going to call our prayer team up to, to be ready to pray with people. But really what I want to pray over us is that the Holy Spirit would increase our love for others so that many will ask about the hope that we have, not because we left them a fake $100 bill as a tip that's really a gospel tract, but because we've genuinely loved them, that we've loved them well. And so just as we close today, I, you know, the only question that I have, you know, the takeaway for me from as I was writing this sermon and feeling very convicted is, is just the question, who might Jesus be calling me to love courageously today? Imagine if everyone in our church if the Holy Spirit was to give you the name of someone you were to love courageously. And I don't know what that looks like. I mean, it might be baking them a casserole. It might be shoveling their sidewalk. It might be going to them and saying, hey, I've been praying for you for years and I just need to let you know God loves you. 
I don't know what it looks like for you, but imagine if whatever it is, 400 and some people this week went and loved someone courageously in the name of Jesus. I think that would have a, a massive impact right now. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you pour the love that you have for us into our hearts by your spirit. And I pray that that love that we have received from you would, would now that you would enable us to extend it to the world that you so love that you sent your son to die for this world. Would we be sent as your son was sent? Would we understand the love that you have for those people that we're in contact with every day? And would you give us the ability to love courageously? Would you give us the ability to sacrifice just a little bit of our time or our resources so that we would love people well, so that we would have opportunities to speak of the hope that we have in you? And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that Cochrane would be turned upside down because the people of Cochrane Alliance Church will love courageously. And I pray that we would imitate Paul as he imitated you and that, we would, that nothing stop us from proclaiming the hope that we have found in you. And I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's worship together.